Let's open to Luke chapter 17. We'll be in verses 1 to 10 this morning. Maybe you've heard someone say something like, Life would be easy if it weren't for other people. Maybe you've even felt that way at times. Well, besides the fact that that you are one of those other people, you know, it's it's actually impossible for us to live a proper life without the involvement of others. Especially those of us who claim Christ. We are actually in the business of being around others. We gather regularly and intentionally for lots of reasons, but one of them is to be around each other. And as we, as we gather, whether it's corporately or whether it's, it's in our homes or whether it's in an Acts 2 group or a men's Bible study, sometimes we are going to run into those situations that remind us of why people might say life would be easy if it weren't for other people. Well, Jesus' words for us in Luke 17 are a grace and a help because Jesus deals realistically and he deals hopefully with how we interact with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He points us towards faith and humility as the bedrock, as the foundation, as the means by which relationships can thrive amongst disciples, or in our context, in the body of Christ. So if we were to put all this together, and we were to summarize what we're going to say today, it might be this, without faith and humility, we will default to using others instead of serving others. Without faith and humility, we will default to using instead of serving one another. So maybe, maybe a roadmap will be, will be helpful, because I, I said a lot, and as you read Nate's, or as Nate read the passage, you might be wondering, how in the world do these four sections kind of fit together? It almost hits you like the book of Proverbs. It almost feels like four unrelated statements. So I think what we have in the first four verses, and I've made these different points if you, if you take notes, but there are three things we need from one another. And then Jesus finishes with, I think, two things that we need him to produce in us if we're going to do verses one to four. So that's, that's sort of the, the roadmap. Three things we need from one another, two things we need God to produce in us if we hope for those first three things to be true. We need godly influence from others. We need correction from others. We need forgiveness from others. And we need God to produce in us genuine faith and real humility. So let's look at that first point. We need the godly encouragement of others. Jesus says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Jesus begins with this ominous warning to the disciples that that temptations are sure to come, reminding them that followers of Christ are not hermetically sealed in their own little compartment over here where they're they're not going to face the temptations from the world. There, There will be these enticements to sin. Now there's a 
a couple words in the New Testament, really, really three, but two big words that are translated temptation in the New Testament. And the one that's used here in Luke 17 is a word that specifically speaks to people or circumstances that would lead one astray from Christ. The idea is a trap that is laid with the intent of leading someone away into sin or even leading someone to walk away from Christ. I think these types of temptations are summed up really well in Jesus' parable of the soilables. Soils, that's, that's a new word I made up. It's soil and parables. It's Luke 8.14 Jesus calls these the cares and riches and the pleasures of life. And these things threaten to choke out the, the, the seed, which is the Word of God. The cares and riches and pleasures of life. We might say the love of money or the pleasures of this world, including sexual sin, or the immediate reward of living for the present. These are a few examples of the sorts of temptation that threaten the faith of the disciples. And as the disciples move forward trying to serve Christ, these are things that they are sure to face. And one of the reasons that these these traps, these snares, these temptations are unavoidable in this fallen world is that there are people who are set on laying these snares and laying these traps. There are people who are actively seeking to lead others astray and to destroy faith. And Jesus has quite the warning for these folks at the end of verse 1 there and and verse 2. Jesus pronounces a a woe. If you've been with us as we walk through Luke, that's, that's a curse. It's a pronouncement of impending calamity or impending judgment. Without repentance, the judgment is near. It will fall. It is, it is coming. It is knocking at the door. Jesus warns that it would be better for this person to meet a cruel and certain death than to be the source of leading people away from Christ and into sin. In graphic imagery, Jesus says it'd be better if a, if a heavy stone were, were draped upon his neck and he were cast into the sea. I was watching this interview one time with a, a former mobster who was tied up in illegal betting. And when he had been asked if he had threatened a certain athlete, he said, I didn't threaten him. I just told him I'm going to put him in concrete shoes and throw him into Boston Harbor. Well, despite what he thinks, that is a threat, and it's a serious threat, and it's a threat on its surface at least that sounds like Jesus' warning here, but there's one big difference between a mobster and what Jesus is saying here. The mobster is threatening so that he can serve himself and get more money and keep somebody in his illegal racket. Jesus' warning here, Jesus' threat is not to serve himself, Not so that he can have more for himself, it's about protecting people, particularly protecting disciples of Christ. Jesus' warning here to those who would seek to lead others astray reveals how much he cares for his people. 
We might say it this way, very few things provoke Jesus to anger quite like someone trying to pray on one of his people, pray on one of his followers. If you are a Christian this morning, that is, that is good news for you, that Jesus has a con- intense concern for your safety, your spiritual safety. He paid the price for you through his work on the cross, and he intends to protect you. He intends to protect his, what Jesus says is his little ones there in verse 2. I think in our context, little ones, it, it means disciples or followers of Christ. As we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, that those who are choosing to follow Christ are ones like Lazarus, who we looked at. Uh, last week, or it's ones like the prodigal son, or it's ones like the lame, the blind, the disabled, the helpless, the, the, the children, the sinners, and the tax collectors. Those are the little ones that Jesus has come to save, and he, and he intends to protect. It is people who know they need a Savior and know they need the tender care of God the Father through Jesus Christ. And Jesus intends to care for His children, and He acts in judgment when His children are threatened. So who are these people that might seek to lead others astray and are threatened with this sort of judgment? Well, to Jesus' initial audience, which is obviously He's talking to the disciples here. We saw that in the beginning of verse 1. It might be the Pharisees who have already been called blind guides of the blind, and sort of a comical example, somebody who can't see telling someone else who can't see where where to go. It might be Roman officials who will, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, imprison and even kill some of Jesus' disciples. It would be false teachers that we find Peter and Paul battling in their epistles who seek to draw people away from the gospel, in cases even by adding to the gospel. And the church today, around the world, it faces similar threats from false teachers, from those who would persecute the church, from those who would preach a self-righteous view of God. But for us this morning... Perhaps the group that hits closest to home as we seek to apply and understand this text is not the Pharisees. It's not persecutors or government officials or TV evangelists. I think maybe the way this hits closest to home for us would be those who push confusion and sin and aim it particularly at young people trying to draw them away from Christ. Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok are filled with folks who would love to lead children astray. And this is just a a caution that unfiltered, unsupervised access to these kinds of apps could be throwing our children to the wolves. So these avenues, I'm not intending to say these avenues are evil in and of themselves. Don't hear me say you're sinning if you have Instagram on your iPhone. But do know that that these avenues are often the means by which millions and millions of children are being catechized. They're being taught. They're being told what to believe. They're being trained 
and discipled away from the truth, away from their parents, away from the local church, and away from Christ. So, so my caution is this, not, again, not that this is sin to have those apps, but don't make it easy on those who would seek to deceive. Put limitations and restrictions and filters and passwords on your devices for the sake of your kids, because there are those. Temptation is sure to come. There are those who are actively seeking to lead others astray. And the reality is that these threats not only come from from outside the body of Christ, but Jesus is speaking to the disciples, warning that, that this might actually arise from within. I think that's why Jesus tells the disciples in verse the beginning of verse 3 to pay attention to themselves. I think that probably fits better with what's going on in verse 2. One example that we've seen in Bible Hour is uh, in walking through Galatians with uh, Justin's teaching, that Peter was out of step with the gospel. And he was out of step with the gospel by showing partiality to Jewish Christians and neglecting Gentile Christians. And, and, and interestingly, one of the things that Paul says is the reason Peter needed to be withstood to his face, he says, even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, obviously, Peter repented and corrected course, but for a season, he was leading others into sin. He was leading others astray by his hypocrisy. So what do we need in light of this danger that temptation are sure to come and there, there's going to be folks who might lead us astray? What do we need? What has God prescribed as the means by which his people might avoid either becoming a stumbling block like Peter or falling over a stumbling block? Well, you could answer that in a lot of ways. You could, you could say sound doctrine. You could say a lot of things. But one of the important things that God has in place for His people is the godly encouragement. Instead of being a stumbling block, we encourage, we push, we admonish, we warn. Even in the middle of uh, verse 3, we rebuke if necessary. So we need the godly encouragement of others because there are those who are pushing in the opposite direction. We need people pushing us towards faithfulness because there are many pushing us away from it. And one way we influence one another is through rebuke or correction. Look there, let's continue on in, in verse 3. Pay attention to your brother or to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. When Paul, again in Galatians, saw that Peter was out of step with the gospel, he rebuked Peter. He withstood Peter to his face. That is what Jesus is calling, calling his followers to do here. To rebuke is to have a conversation with someone in the hopes that you're preventing them from continuing in sin. And this is a command that's given to the disciples, given to followers of Christ. This isn't just for those who are good at it or those who are comfortable with this sort of conversation. Certainly some are better than others. You know, this is what, you know, that book, The Trellis and the Vine, it calls every member ministry. 
And one of the things that I'm thankful for as, as one of the elders is that, that, that we see this sort of ministry happening within the body. Because a church that just forces every issue to the top, a, a, a church that forces every hard conversation to the top, is going to be limited by what four or five guys can handle. But if every member is engaged in this sort of ministry, we can grow up together into Christ. We won't be limited by the strength and the time and the ability of a few men. What's interesting about this, the the way Jesus talks about what we're supposed to do if your brother sins, rebuke him. seems that Jesus assumes that there are certain qualities in our relationships that will allow for this sort of hard conversation, that will allow for, for this type of humble, even gentle, loving confrontation that won't destroy our relationships. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what Jesus, he, he, he used that word brother there, if your brother sins, reminding us of this commonality that we share together in Christ. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we share a common commitment to Him and we share a common pursuit of righteousness. What, what, what qualities undergird our relationships that can withstand hard conversations? It's a shared commitment to Christ and it's a shared pursuit of righteousness. And if we have those two things together, th- then we can willingly and humbly submit ourselves to what we might call mutual accountability. And this is essentially what we call church membership. This is what we're trying to do with church membership. You can't turn to a proof text and and, and say, thou shalt do it. What we're trying to do is take the words of Christ here, take the letters of Paul and Peter and James and say, all right, if we did all of this, what would it look like? Now let's call it church membership and let's covenant together to try to pursue these goals together. Church membership is a people who have come to know Christ, who desire together to become like Christ, promising to help each other along the path. Promising to submit to one another in mutual accountability, including the hard work of rebuking one another for sin. That is why part of our our membership covenant has this line, we will respond humbly and immediately to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the love of the family of God when confronted with sin and failure. Sometimes we have to do the hard work of having hard conversations for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the good of the body of Christ. But rebuke is, is a hard word. It's a harsh word, and it can be harsh, and sometimes our words have to be stronger than at other times. But the question that comes to me as I think about this text is, how do we keep Southern Hills from becoming an oppressive place where a bunch of just legalistic, and it's not this, so I'm saying, how do we keep it from becoming this An oppressive place where a bunch of legalistic people just join together and all we're doing is pointing fingers at each other and pointing out people's flaws. Well, there's some some things we can do. We want Southern Hills to be a place that is a refuge for those who confess and repent of sin. 
right? The church is, we're not saying that the church is a safe place for sin. You see in Jesus' command to rebuke a brother in his sin, that that, that, that argument wouldn't stand. We, we don't, we're, we're not safe in the sense that, hey, whatever, we just won't care about sin. But we want our church to be a refuge for those who confess and repent of sin. We want Southern Hills to, to continue to be a place where hard conversations happen in the context of gentleness and humility, knowing that we all fall short of the glory of God, that we're all desperately dependent on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We want Southern Hills to be a place where we continually encourage, always encourage, and rebuke when necessary. We want Southern Hills to be a place of charity towards one another. A place of charity, a place of love. Notice in verse 3 that that these sins, they're, they're evident or there's something that has been done against you. Jesus will go on to say if someone sins against you. Jesus isn't implying that to be faithful we must be private investigators. I've sat in small groups and other churches that feel more like interrogations than brothers and sisters in Christ stirring one another on to, to love and good works. You know, the lights were dim, the single light was hanging. I've seen motives question where there was no good reason to question the motive of another believer. So what's, what, what do we, we, we want charity to drive our concern so that we might win others when it's time to correct them. The goal is that we might correct one another when necessary and grow into the image of Christ together. And this requires grace and forgiveness, which is that third thing we need from one another. We need godly encouragement. We need correction. And we need grace and forgiveness. Look there at the end of verse 3. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus' people are to be a forgiving people. I had a counselee once say, say to me, I need to know if I've forgiven my husband. I need to know if I've forgiven my husband. And I explained explained to her that that God is is perfect in all righteousness. And when he forgives, he forgives without any sense of of wavering. But uh, oftentimes when we forgive, what we're doing is we're making a promise. And then we're called to walk consistent with that promise. We're called to treat people as if they are forgiven because we have forgiven them. So when we say to someone, I forgive you, we are making a promise to them. That we will treat them like they are forgiven. And then we must fight, as many of you know who have, who have walked this road of trying to forgive someone, we must fight to treat, continue to treat them that way. Continue to treat them as if they've been forgiven. So we fight to, to sort of dwell on this thing that's happened against us. Some, somebody's sinned against us, somebody's hurt us, somebody said some harsh things to us. Well, well what do we do? We turn, we, well, not always, but often we turn on the instant replay. And we observe it from, like an NFL game you watched on Thanksgiving, we observe it from seven different angles and we quickly recall all the things that were done wrong to us. The hurtful words, the selfish actions, 
we're not careful, they become a, a, a source of preoccupation. And if you're preoccupied with what's been done to you, you you're, you're not walking consistent with what you've told them you have done. Our thoughts are not lining up with our words if we say, I forgive you, but we continually dwell on the sin. And if we dwell on it, it you know, what, what typically follows is we're going to find ways to sort of bring it back up. We're going to find ways to, to like, Proverbs calls, words are like sword thrust. We're going to find ways to sort of thrust this back into you. Try to hurt you with what you did to me. We might be hurt and decide that we're going to lash out by throwing someone's failures back at them, hoping for nothing more than to reopen the wound. We want to avoid gossip. If we've truly forgiven, we want to avoid gossip. To gossip is this. It's to talk about someone else's sin to someone who is not either part of the problem or part of the solution. If they're not part of the problem or part of the solution, we're not, we're not serving anybody but ourselves by broadcasting someone's sin. Now, there may be times where you need counsel and you need help. And you say, you, you go to your brother, your sister in Christ, you come to one of the elders. You, you want to know, you genuinely want to know how to seek uh, or how to respond to a certain situation. Well, in that moment, you're, you're inviting someone into the conversation to be part of the solution. Just make sure we're not saying, well, I need counsel from everyone, so I'm going to tell everyone. Another promise we're, walking, we're, we're making when I say I forgive you is we're promising to not allow this sin to destroy our relationship. And this may be the most difficult one to keep because sin is a disruptor and sin is a destroyer. If forgiveness is not sought and granted, and notice, notice in the text, the, the person that sins against you seven times a day, notice who takes the initiative. It's the one who has sinned. So if forgiveness is not sought and granted, then relationships will be destroyed. Forgiveness is such a radical concept. It's such a radical idea, especially in light of our, our current culture. And oh, Somebody said something wrong 30 years ago, so they're, they're dead to us. Forgiveness is such a radical idea that it says, I'm going to treat you like you aren't guilty of this sin. Now, we aren't naive that there are certain occasions where it may not be safe for a relationship to turn completely back to the way it was. There can be forgiveness there without putting someone back in an, a bad situation. An abusive father may receive his children's forgiveness without being granted the right to live under the same roof if he's too dangerous. But forgiveness means removing the guilt, even though, as even our forgiveness with the Lord, sometimes there's consequences that endure. But typically, we're making this promise. I'm not going to allow this to stand in the way of our relationship. What a difficult thing this is for us to do. What a, what a hardship. As you read the end of verse 3, if your brother repents, forgive him. And then you read verse 4, and you just want to faint. Seven times? If you are sinned against seven times in one day and the person seeks forgiveness seven times, you should forgive him seven times. 
What a radical demand from Christ. And I wonder how many churches have split apart because bitterness crept in that was caused by a lack of seeking forgiveness and a lack of granting it. And somebody said, you know what, that's the last time. I wonder how many elder teams are divided because they wouldn't practice forgiveness. I wonder how many marriages have dissolved because there was no admission of guilt, there was no forgiveness, there was no grace. How many neighbors are on bad terms because something happened 10 years ago that went unresolved? For friendships, for marriages, for church members, if we can become quicker at seeking and granting forgiveness, then we can experience God's goodness. We can live God's way for His glory and avoid the bitterness of walking in our own path. What a command. What a command. Seven times in one day. We might be tempted to think that this sort of willingness to forgive is naive. We might be tempted to think this is, this is an absurd command. But ultimately, we should be glad and we should be thankful that the command is this radical because it's ultimately based on the forgiveness that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. The reason we're called to forgive the way that we are is because we're called to forgive as God and Christ has forgiven us. This high standard reminds us that God has done above and beyond what we would think is acceptable, what we would think is normal. God has indeed blotted out our transgressions. He has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He does not remember your sins against you. He does not count your transgressions against you. He has forgiven you in Christ of every single transgression. Not one will stand. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And it's in light of that that we seek to be a forgiving people because we serve a forgiving Christ. We need some serious help here. If we're honest, if we're going to take a stab at this sort of community where we don't set up stumbling blocks, but instead we push each other towards godliness, where we're willing to have hard conversations and correct and rebuke if, if necessary, where grace and forgiveness is characteristic of a people, if we, if we seek after that, and we are, we need God's grace. Right? This is not something we can conjure up in ourselves. And, and, and so look at what the disciples say there in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. As we walk through the first four verses of this section, you may be like me and asking, man, who is sufficient for this? Who is sufficient for this task? Maybe you this morning are wrestling with forgiving somebody at work or at home or in the church. Perhaps you're growing weary in really this high demand of community within the body of Christ. You know you want to be more tied in more deeply with the body, but you also know that that will create times when correction and forgiveness are necessary, and that's hard, and so you feel the weight of Jesus' command here, and you can understand why the disciples would say, Lord, increase our faith. 
for all the disciples' failures in the Gospels, and we've rehearsed plenty of them to this point, for all their failures, they recognize this. They know that Jesus is Lord, because only God can do this sort of work. They know that Jesus is Lord and that He is the one that can help their faith. He is the one that must do something in them if they're going to live anywhere close to verses 1 to 4. Lord, increase our faith. But I love Jesus' answer. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What Jesus does is he actually redirects their, their statements. They were making, you know, okay, this request, it's okay. But in a sense, they're still looking inward. Lord, make my faith bigger. And Jesus says, you know what? It's not so much about having this great faith. It's not about having this big faith. It is small faith even in a great God. Faith the size of a mustard seed. In other words, Jesus directs their attention off of themselves and trying to conjure up some some strength and direct their eyes to the one who can actually affect this sort of change. You will find that the smallest amount, Jesus says, of the kind of faith that's directed in the right direction to, to God, that little amount of faith is powerfully effective. Powerfully effective. Jesus says, he uses this this imagery that with with that little faith that's directed in the right direction, has the right object. You could look at a tree whose, those mulberry trees, their roots ran so deep, it was pointless to try to uproot one. And you could tell it to do something impossible, like plant itself in the middle of the ocean, and it would obey. It would obey. Now, Jesus' point isn't about gardening or moving mountains over in, in Matthew. He is illustrating something for us. That God, producing genuine faith in His people, can bring about stunning results. He can do in you what you think is impossible. In our text, it would mean that the faith that God can produce in you can lead to the sort of community that seems impossible in verses 1 to 4. A place where people don't cause one another to stumble and fall. A place where correction is both received and given in love. And a place where grace and forgiveness and kindness characterize relationships. So we should actually pause before we repeat the apostles' request, at least here. I'm not saying it's never an appropriate thing to ask for. But like, like the apostle, we, we may be misguided in what we are asking for, what we're hoping for. We may be somewhat uh, deceiving ourselves and kind of staring inside ourselves in, in order for God to do what, what only He can do. We might be seeking a quantitative difference. Lord, make my faith bigger instead of actually staring at the one who can act for our good. 
instead of being reminded about the object of our faith. Now, faith, by definition, is, is reliance. You know, you might say faith is something like belief put, put to action. That's why I like that word reliance. It, it's, it's relying on God. It rests in His character. It relies on what He supplies instead of what we can conjure up in and of ourselves. And if that's true, then our hope is not in the amount of faith that we can get, but in the God in whom we place our faith. That's our ultimate hope. Perhaps a better request might be, Lord, cause me to have real, authentic reliance on you. To be reminded of who you are. To trust in what you can do and have done. So there's no hope to do verses 1 to 4 without relying on God who can produce in us the the faith necessary to walk in obedience to these difficult commands. But that's not the final word this morning. We also need God to produce in us an attitude of humility or humble service. Jesus tells a parable there in verses 7 through 10. And and the story itself is not hard to understand. There's nothing secretive. There's no difficult interpretive matters within the parable. The story Jesus tells is one about a, a, a servant and a master. And he says that the servant doesn't come home from working out in the field, and the master says, hey, you know what? Kick your shoes off and take a break. Instead, the servant will prepare a meal for the master And then he will have an opportunity to eat. And Jesus says, Nor does the master thank the servant for simply doing what his job requires. You know, in our context, not perfectly, obviously, but, you know, we might imagine somebody running the drive through at McDonald's, and after every car gets through, they run to the manager and say, like, got another one through, got another one through. And the manager's like, dude, Get in your little box. What do you want from me? It's absurd. And it's even more absurd in a culture where a servant would have made himself a servant because he was so destitute that he had no other options. And so he would have been completely reliant on the master. So he should do what the master says. That's the parable. Jesus applies it in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When you get to the end of the parable, you find that the disciples aren't the master in the parable. They are the servant. The point is that we serve one who is over us. Followers of Christ serve a master who is greater than us. We are indeed unworthy servants. In other words, we don't put God in our debt through the work that we do. We don't put Him in our debt. God is not our patron that pays us for the work that we have done. So we don't take or seek any special commendation for doing what the master Requires We have simply done what we are expected to do. We are servants. We are something, in fact, in some ways, something less 
than the McDonald's employee we mentioned earlier because at least that person is being paid for a task that's being performed. God is not indebted to us. And when we think about this, in light of the rest of Scripture, it's good news that we aren't employees. It's good news that we aren't employees. At the end of the day, to be an unworthy servant of the Lord is better than getting paid by an employer. And here's what I mean. We don't serve in order to reap something in return. We don't serve in order to be repaid. Instead, we, we serve as God's people because we've received the, all that's coming to us, and well, most of what's coming to us, up front. We serve out of the abundance of God's grace that has been showered upon us so that we don't have to serve in order to get something. We don't try to put God in our debt because He's already given us righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so everything you receive from God's hand is not a payment for service rendered. It is a gift of grace. The fact that He doesn't owe us anything and that we are unworthy servants, it only serves to emphasize His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It highlights the glory of the gospel where Jesus Christ made Himself a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He demonstrated His great love for us by dying on the cross, purchasing our eternal reward and reconciling us to God. So we are humbled by our position as unworthy servants by being reminded that there is actually nothing that we could offer to God that He would repay us. We're humbled when we consider our position, and we're humbled when we consider the staggering grace of God that come, came first to enemies, but allowed us to become servants of the Lord. Remember what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 12, in verse 37. He said, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table, and He will come and serve them. Are those two ideas in conflict? That we're unworthy servants, yet Jesus says, Blessed is, is the servant that's found faithful, and the master ends up serving the servant. No, it's highlighting the kindness of God towards us. That Jesus, the Lord of all creation, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, served the servants. Not out of obligation, but out of humility and grace. And so this morning, as we look to our great God and Savior, let us endeavor to fully rely on Him, walking in Christ-like humility, so that we might have the love and the courage to do the hard work of encouraging one another, correcting one another, and forgiving one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so aware this morning that we fall short of your command, even as a servant in the parable has done all that he was commanded. None of us here can claim that we've done all that you commanded, yet in Christ Jesus we've been reconciled to you. May we serve you with joy and with faithfulness out of a heart of 
love and gratitude for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.